0: preclude profound dissatisfaction at times. Stephen could be blamed, and Jack did blame him, for having planned the escape of his former servant, Padine Coleman, from New South Wales. The escape took place in the confusion that followed Maturin's encounter with the platypus, with the consent of Padine's master, and the entire crew, and it could be said that Captain Aubrey's word was unbroken, his promise that the surprise should carry no absconder from Port Jackson since the absconder came from Wooloo Wooloo. Yet Jack dismissed this as a mere quibble. He had other causes for discontent. The curious falsity of the trade wind that obliged the ship to beat up close-hauled day after day, wearing every four hours. That throughout the voyage Jack Aubrey had been chased... That he'd taken only two midshipmen for whom he felt a particular responsibility from his previous ship, the Nutmeg, into the surprise, and both were extremely irritating. Reed, a pretty boy who had lost an arm in their battle against sea dyaks, was overindulged by the surprises and was now much above himself, while Oakes, a hairy youth of seventeen, went about singing in a most unofficer-like manner, a kind of bull-calf joy. Jack passed on and came to the strange, unaccountable behaviour of the frigate's people. Something seemed to have happened to them in Sydney. Now they were fuller of mirth, they had private expressions that caused gales of laughter in the forecastle, and he often saw them looking at him with a knowing smile. In any other ship this might have meant mischief, but here even the officers had something of the same oddness. At times even Tom Pullings, his first lieutenant, seemed to be watching him with a considering eye. Yet all this put together could not account for his growing ill-humour. "'Perhaps I shall ask Stephen for a blue pill,' he said. "'I've not been to the head this age.' Stephen was still playing, and Jack walked into the cabin on tiptoe, making those gestures that people use to show that they are immaterial being silent invisible. Stephen brought his phrase to a close and said You've come below, I find. Yes, said Jack, I have. I should like to consult you. By all means, if what you have to say is of an intimate nature at all. "'Let us close the skylight.' "'It is not,' said Jack, closing the companion, nevertheless. "'But I am most damnably hips cross, even in the mornings. Is, "'Is there a medicine for good temper? "'A delight in one's blessings?' "'Show me your tongue,' said Stephen, and then, shaking his head, "'lie on your back.' "'And after a while he said,' "'It is your liver that is the peccant part. "'It is turgid, readily palpable. "'I've disliked your liver for some time now. "'As I've told you these many years, "'you eat too much, you drink too much, "'and you do not take enough exercise. "'I shall bleed you "'to be followed by a comfortable enemata, "'and I advise you to resume your sea-bathing.' "'Jack watched the steady flow of his blood into the bowl. "'He cleared his throat. <clears throat> I suppose you have patience with, well, desires. I mean, I mean, if you'll forgive a gross expression, with importunate tricks. Sure, I understand you. There is little in the pharmacopoeia to help them, sometimes, waving his lancet. I propose a simple little operation, a moment's pang, then freedom for life storms of passion, and when they decline, which they invariably do, why, then, all I can suggest is that they learn to control their emotions. Few succeed, and some, I am afraid, are driven to strange, wild extremes. He closed the vein. As for the blue devils of which you complain, my dear, do not expect too much from my remedies. Youth and unthinking happiness— are not to be had in a bottle, alas. You are to consider that a certain melancholy and irascibility accompany advancing age. On reaching the middle years, a man perceives he is no longer able to do certain things, that looks are deserting him, that however he may yet burn, he is no longer attractive to women. And he rebels. Stephen, surely you'd never consider me middle-aged?' Navigators are notoriously short-lived, Jack. You've led as unhealthy a life as can be imagined, perpetually exposed to the falling damps, called up at all hours. You've been wounded many times, and cruelly overworked. No wonder your hair is grey. My hair is a very becoming buttercup yellow. Jack... "'wore his hair long, clubbed and tied with a broad black bow. Stephen plucked the bow loose "'and brought the plait round before his eyes. "'Well, I'm damned,' said Jack, looking at it in the sunlight. "'You're quite right. "'It's positively grizzled. i would never noticed.' "'At five bells in the forenoon watch, "'the ship being under a great spread of sail, "'with the gentle breeze one point free,' "'The sky clear, and Mount Pitt in Norfolk Island, sharp on the horizon, "'west the officer of the watch said to Oakes, the mate of the watch, "'Beat to divisions!' Oakes turned to Pratt and said, "'Beat to divisions,' whereupon Pratt brought his drumstick down "'and the general boomed and roared throughout the ship. "'This surprised no one. "'Shirts and duck trousers had been washed on Friday, dried and prettied on Saturday, "'and when each officer reported his division present, properly dressed and clean, sir,' To Pullings, they rarely looked presentable, and Pullings was able, with a clear conscience, to turn to Captain Aubrey, take off his hat, and say, All the officers have reported, sir. Then we will go round the ship, if you please, replied Jack, and all fell mute. The First Division was the afterguard, under Davidge, who saluted and fell in behind his captain. All hats flew off, the seamen stood as straight and as motionless as could be in the heavy swell, and Jack walked slowly along the line, looking attentively into familiar faces. Most retained their ceremonial expression, but in a few, he thought he detected a look of something he could hardly name. Amusement? Knowingness? In any case, a lack of the usual frank, amiable vacuity.' On to west, poor noseless west, a victim of the biting frost far south of the horn. On again, accompanied by Mr. Smith, the gunner, and Mr. Reed, to the division made up of the captains of gun crews, quarter gunners, and the armourer. Then the four topmen, the youngest, brightest, most highly decorated members of the ship's company, who were led by Mr. Oakes. Although he was a plain, thick-faced youth, he was unusually popular— he was often drunk, always jolly, with a great flow of animal spirits. He never tyrannised, nor did he report any sinner. And although he was no great seaman in the navigational way, he would run up to the iron cross-trees with the best of them. In the forecastle, Jack was received by Mr. Boutley, the boatswain, and Mr. Bentley, the carpenter, grave men, but scarcely graver than the forecastle hands, prime middle-aged seamen. Behind them, In the days when the surprise was in regular commission, there would have stood the ship's boys, but a privateer had no room for boys, and their place, ludicrously enough, was taken by two little girls, Sarah and Emily Sweeting, Melanesians, from the remote Sweeting's Island, the only survivors of a community wiped out by smallpox. They'd been carried aboard by Dr. Maturin, and the task of looking after them naturally fell to Jemmy Ducks, the ship's poulterer. "'who now whispered, "Tow the line, and make you bob.' "'The little girls fixed their bare black toes on a seam in the deck, "'plucked the sides of their white duck frocks, and curtsied. "'Sarah and Emily,' said the captain, "'I hope I see you well.' "'Very well, sir, we thank you,' they replied, gazing anxiously into his face. "'On to the galley, with its coppers shining like the sun.' The cheerful cook and his sullen assistant, Jack Nastyface, whose name, like chips for the carpenter or jemmy ducks, went with the office, onto the lower deck where the hammocks swung by night but empty now with ornaments and pictures laid out pretty on the seamen's chests. Not a hint of dust, and the light sloping down through the gratings. They came to the midshipman's berth, cabins built up on either side and reaching as far aft as the gunroom, too small in the days when the frigate carried so many master's mates and midshipmen, too big, now that she had only oaks and reed, particularly as Martin, the surgeon's mate, and Adams, the captain's clerk, lived in the gunroom, where the purser's, master's and marine officer's cabins all stood vacant. They did not look into the gunroom, though it would have borne the severest inspection, but went down to the sick berth. Jack opened the door. Stephen, Martin and Padine stood up. The invalids assumed a rigid posture.